to episode 25 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. My guests on the show today are Cal Patch and Jen Beeman. Cal Patch has been a maker since she was a Girl Scout in the 70s. She sews, crochets, spins, embroiders, knits, prints, drafts, patterns, dyes, hence the name of her label, HodgePodge. Cal has taught all of these subjects for nearly 15 years and currently travels around the United States teaching at retreats like Squam Art Workshops, The Makery, Lucky Star Art Camp, Shake a Rag, and Fiber College, as well as local shops and online with Creative Bug. Her specialty is teaching people that they really can make their own clothes that actually fit. After 17 years of being a New York City dweller, in 2009, Cal relocated to the Catskills, where she's becoming a crafty farmer, and you might hear her rooster in the background during the show. Her first book, Design It Yourself Clothes, Pattern Making Simplified, is out from Pottercraft. You can see what she's up to at her blog, Hodgepodge Farm. Cal Patch, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Jennifer Beeman is the designer and pattern maker behind Grainline Studio, a line of sewing patterns featuring modern, fashion-forward patterns that will fit seamlessly into your everyday wardrobe. Jen studied fashion design at Columbia College, where she focused on pattern making and technical design, and began working as a pattern maker just prior to graduating, until recently, when she stopped to focus on Grainline Studio full-time. In addition to running Greenline Studio, she now teaches at Columbia College Chicago in the fashion department. For tips, tricks, tutorials, and sewing inspiration, follow along with the Greenline Studio blog or peek in behind the scenes of running a small pattern company by following Greenline Studio on Instagram. Jen Beeman, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I am so thrilled to have the two of you together to talk about sewing clothes and about pattern making and about how home sewing is changing. So thank you so much for being here. Cal, we're going to start with you. Um, You majored in fashion design in college and then went to work as a clothing designer for some well-known companies, including Urban Outfitters and The Gap. So can you describe what that experience was like and what you took away from that? Yeah, <laughs> I, there's just so much to say about that. <laughs> but, um, well, basically, I um, it at the time it was my dream job to go work for Urban Outfitters. I just had always I always thought they were kind of like unique, and I really loved their clothes. So I worked there for pretty much my whole um, my twenties, and It was really fun, but slowly over the years of working in the industry, I just started to really kind of come around to the idea that the whole fashion industry as a whole really just, it's kind of a scam (laughs) because basically the idea that you need to buy new clothes every season and get like the ones that you wore last year are no longer cool is totally really against everything I believe in personally. So, um, it's not to say like at that time I, I came around to the idea of people making their own clothes and sewing at home being a big movement because this was long before any of that started to happen again. But I just, um, I began a process of 
evolving away from working in the industry and kind of just figuring out my own path because um, it just didn't feel right to me. Basically, that concept of, um, and long before anyone said the words planned obsolescence, the fashion industry was operating on that principle for like ever, basically. Um, but then the other thing is that I didn't feel comfortable with the way the clothing was being produced and um, the fact that everything's just getting cheaper and cheaper and the people that are actually making the clothes aren't getting treated fairly and that whole deal. So after, it sounds like after, you know, how long were you there? 10 years or Um, I was there for about seven years and then I freelanced for other companies like The Gap um, for probably five years after that. Okay. So, so you just sort of, it sounds like just became uncomfortable with the whole sort of structures that were in place there. And then, um, and then you struck out on your own, you had a retail store for a few years in New York where you sold the clothes that you were making as well as clothes made by other indie designers. And I'm guessing that, you know, that experience of interacting with customers and with designers was a pretty valuable one too, and inform the work that you do now in sort of a different way. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about what that was like? Sure. Um, and I love, you do such good research. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kills me though, that this was all before like the, the internet was invented. So I regret that I don't have more pictures of my store with, sorry, my store was a really fun place and it was, it was just so beautiful, the actual space that I was in. And I just regret that I don't have a ton of photographs. I guess somewhere I do, but they're like printed, you know, and I need to like find them and scan them. But anyway, um, what was your store called? It was called patch 155, which was the address and it was in the Lower East Side of New York City, which um, at the time, and this was, I let's see, I opened the store in 1998, and then I closed it in 2002. It was a very um, edgy neighborhood, you could say. Like, it was literally on the edge of civilization, really. Even though it was in Manhattan, it was pretty far removed from, like, a street that anyone actually walked down. (laughs) So, um, basically, I opened this store, and I had actually never even worked in a store before, so it was totally an experiment. And I also didn't really have any merchandise (laughs) when I opened, because I knew that the kind of people whose work I wanted to sell just, you know, they weren't going to be at trade shows or like anywhere I could find them. And again, this was pre-internet, so you couldn't really find people so easily. But sure enough, just like I hoped that people, the designers would just kind of find me and come to me and show me what they made. And it was really fun and exciting. And like you said, I did love working directly (laughs) with customers and you know people could come in and try things on and um it was just super super fun and the though I did learn that 
sales is not my strong point. And actually the, um, the physical like day-to-day experience of running a store was really not for me, but I kind of had a feeling, I didn't necessarily think I would have a store the rest of my life. It was something I had dreamed of doing and I'm really glad I did it and kind of moved through that and I learned a lot and now I don't really have the desire to have a store anymore. You got out of your system, but, <laughs> right. but such a different um, environment than working for sort of corporate fashion. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're buying from makers themselves and selling to people who really value that, who are willing to travel to the part of, <laughs> of, <laughs> of Manhattan that most people don't travel to and probably yeah. pay for something that's yeah. really handmade. Of course, now it's a super hip neighborhood. Right. <laughs> yeah, at the time when I could afford it, it was like before it was up and coming. Right, right. So, so then you went on to teach. It sounds like sort of prim- that as your primary focus. You co-founded a craft school called Make and start started teaching there. And now you teach all over the country. I feel like you're always at a retreat somewhere <laughs> on Instagram. And your book. Um, design it yourself clothes and your creative bug classes are really focused on teaching people pattern making so that they can come up with a pattern that really fits their body and that helps them make the clothes that they really want to make. And I have to tell you that, that your book was such an inspiration to me. My second book, stuffed animals from concept to construction has sort of the same goal in mind, which is teaching people to design their own patterns based Mm -hmm. on their own ideas and making those ideas come to life. So Mm -hmm. thank you for that. Cause it was such a, when I saw it, I was like, see, this is what I want to do, but about (laughs) dolls. (laughs) Ah, totally. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why you focus on teaching and what you learn from, you know, from your students? Yeah. Um, I, I love teaching and, it's not really something I ever thought I was going to do, but it was actually when I had the store that I began teaching because in the beginning, it just seemed like a good way to kind of get people into the shop. And, you know, people would walk by and look inside and see that no one was in there, like especially in the winter when it got dark really early. And um, I was like, how can I just get people in here? And people were always telling me they wanted to learn how to crochet. They wanted to learn how to sew. So it just seemed like a natural evolution to start showing them. And then um, that just really kind of took off for me because I found where selling is not something I'm very good at teaching. I think I am pretty good at it. And I think mostly it's because I'm good at breaking down, um, the thought process and the actual steps that you need to do and explaining it in a way that makes sense to someone who's never done something before. So, um, I love teaching and I do always learn new things from my students And the pattern making came about because people had been asking me for years, like I was teaching sewing classes and personally, I didn't really do a lot of sewing from commercial patterns because again, at the time there weren't really 
sewing patterns that I actually wanted to make. Most of them were, you know, just simplicity and McCall's and all that stuff. And they just weren't the kind of clothes that I liked. So I was making patterns for my own clothes and clothes that I sold, but people were, I was teaching people to sew, but there was kind of this disconnect where they were like, this is great that I can sew, but I want to make this kind of, you know, cool dress that I have in my head, but there's no pattern for it. So it just sort of, really my whole life has been like an organic evolution of things that I don't plan, but it just happened that I finally gave in. And at first I thought I could really never teach people pattern making because it's, it's kind of a weird thing. (laughs) Like, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you would say about this, Jen, but the way, when I learned it in fashion school, the way they taught it to us was kind of outdated and it was all very abstract. Like we didn't really learn. We definitely weren't making clothes for ourselves and we didn't even really know who we were making them for. Like we had these slopers and they were given to us, which are just like basic patterns. And the the concept of like someone's measurements or the actual body that you're making things for, like we just made things for the mannequins, basically the dress forms. Um, so I kind of kept thinking like, well, I don't know how I could teach pattern making. It's so abstract and weird. Meanwhile, I was making all these patterns for just very simple clothing, which is really when you look at it, the clothes we all wear today are quite simple So one day I just said, okay, I can do this. I can show people the way I do it, and that will probably satisfy a great bulk of their needs. And then, you know, if they want to go to FIT and learn the really technical nitty-gritty of it, they can do that too. I wonder how your professors (laughs) from back then, right, I don't know if you're still in touch with any of them or not, but I just wonder, you know, it just makes me curious, like if they saw your book and they saw what kinds of workshops you're working on now and the way that you're showing sort of, you know, regular hobbyists, everyday women, um, how to draft a pattern that fits their own body. That's a real body, um, and not a mannequin. And I mean, what would they say about that? What would they think? I would love to know the answer to that. I've never, I've not heard from anyone. Um, I, I, I'll, I used to think about it a lot. Like, I wonder if they'll notice, but, um, I, it was so long ago that I was in school. So I, I, I mean, who knows anyone who would notice or care is probably like beyond caring. Right. But I just wonder if they would think that like, um, I don't know. Like, is was there sort of a snooty feeling? Like, um, you know, you, you can't teach it in such a in such a sort of, I don't know, simplified way that makes it so anyone can do it. Like, you know, sort of an Maybe. elitist feeling. Maybe I I really have no idea. It's it's a funny thing. Like um, this morning when I was thinking about you know some of the things we were going to talk about, I I was thinking how like I would love to kind of secretly go back to fashion school and like take pattern drafting classes and like 
experience it again from my new perspective because I would just, from what I've heard, it doesn't sound like things have changed all that much. Um, again, I'd love to hear Jen's perspective on that, but I, I just really feel like there was a huge gap between the way, at least the way I learned it and the actual practical application of it when you think of it in terms of home sewing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they'd say. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, and Jen, I do want to go back to your background a little bit, but maybe we should just have, um, have a few minutes for you to think about those ideas too. Would you agree with Cal that, um, the way that it's taught in school, I mean, it sounds like you went to school a little bit more recently. So has, have things changed? What do you think? I don't think they've really changed. I mean, we spent like the first entire day of class learning how to cut a line properly. (laughs) And then, um, after that, like the whole first, uh, semester of that pattern is just like, you don't make a, a thing really till like the end. And it's again, not for you. You just manipulate a dart every single possible way you can and make like a half shell. So I think it's the same. <laughs> interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah, I didn't go to, to school for what I do now. I'm, I'm a teacher. So <laughs> I was, I went to school for education, um, graduate school at least. So anyway, it's just so interesting to hear. Like, but, I, but I'm guessing that the, that the, the concepts, right, are still applicable. Like, if, you know, you're, you're going to use all those different kinds of darts at some point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. No, it's, it's just nice, like, because then when you encounter something out in the wild or whatever, when you're working, you're like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. But at the time, you're like, what the hell? Like, this is so boring. You're just, you know, do, moving a dart around. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and, yeah. And it is, it's all for the mannequin. And, like, you get the fit model in, like, two classes before the end of the semester. And, of course, it doesn't fit them because, you know, you've been working off this mannequin. And, like, Working on the mannequin is not the same as working on a human because they have like a funny, I don't know. They're just, they're not very human-like in reality. <laughs> so that was always funny. Yeah, yeah. totally. And you're, and you're not making clothes for yourself, um, which is interesting too, um, because that's so much of the focus of what both of you do now. I mean, not just for yourself, but for other people, but regular people. Um, so, so Jen, let's do a little bit about your background. You as we just talked about, have a degree in fashion design, but it came after an undergraduate degree in photography, which I think the two of those things together is just sort of an amazing thing for the internet. Um, And you also worked for other larger companies designing clothes, uh, clothing patterns before striking out on your own. So what was your job as a pattern maker like? And tell us about Hound. Oh God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, so I was a pattern maker for mainly for one company here and then a little, um, freelance stuff. And we, it was a custom like bridal place. And so every person that came in got their own pattern and it was a real, like I got the job before I graduated. One of my teachers wanted out of the job. So she gave it to me. Um, and I was like, probably not really prepared for an actual job at that moment, but I took it anyway. And so it was a real like crash course in fitting actual people of like many, many sizes. Um, so that was pretty, pretty eye opening as far as like, Oh my gosh, I'm not making this for a mannequin or a size two model. 
and it has to fit and I need to have this done by like lunch. So that was kind of crazy, but, um, it sounds too like the women, the other women, the seamstresses who worked for the bridal company were these like incredibly skillful people as well. Yeah, they were amazing. Um, they were all from, um, like Eastern Europe or Russia. And, um, a lot of them went to school over there to become like, um, highly skilled seamstresses and the things they could sew just still blow my mind. (laughs) It was amazing. Tell us about Hound. Was that after the bridal shop? Um, that was at the same time. Um, when I went back to school, I thought I wanted to like be a designer or something. And then I realized that I was really into the pattern making part. Um, so I started focusing on that and then I did, I'm not good at working for other people. Um, and I thought I wanted to move to New York at first, but after going to visit and doing a little internship, I just, I couldn't deal. It's, it's it's so fast and so stressful and I'm not good at being stressed out. So I was like, well, I'm not going to go there. Um, so I'll just try to start my own thing. And so I started Hound (laughs) and, um, it was, it was a lot of fun, but it was really stressful because the overhead you need to start a clothing line is kind of insane. Um, and then it got to the point where I, I was sewing, doing the pattern, like everything myself, where I needed to outsource like the sewing. And I'm probably, I mean, I probably could have kept doing the pattern making, but it was to the point where I needed to be like the business owner slash designer and let somebody else do that other stuff. But that was the stuff I liked doing. So called it a, called it a day on that. <laughs> so, so you had like a, a whole line and were like ordering fabric and making actual clothes and selling those clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, it's a big venture. And I think it's interesting too, that, you know, sort of like Cal, you guys both, I don't know, kind of have tried different ways to express this sort of deeper love of making clothes and making patterns. And, um, and I think it really speaks to the idea that like, you don't have to know right away how you want to express it, but over time by experiencing all these different outlets, you realize what is right for you and what feels good. And, you know, so, um, so I think you guys, it's so interesting to see both of your, your different paths. So, so then you started your blog, Grand Line Studio, and I feel like that really helped you shift your career focus and, you know, become an independent designer. Is that, am I, am I telling that right? And was the blog a stepping stone for you? Yeah, it was. I started it, um, because I, I, when you're a pattern maker, you don't design anything. You just, you're handed a sketch and you make the pattern for that sketch. Um, so I was feeling like not super creative for a while. Um, and I just wanted to start making things again for myself. So I started my blog and just started doing that. And then randomly people started asking for the patterns because I guess they wanted to sew them. And, um, <laughs> so that's how Brainline, the pattern company started. People just wanted the patterns. So I thought, Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll put that out there. <laughs> and it went well. So it was totally random. Like didn't plan that at all. So um, what, was the, what was the first one? It was the tiny pocket tank. Okay. And what happened? So you made it, you, you know, made it as a PDF and, and you put it up for sale. And what was that like? Like what, what happened next? 
It was terrifying. Um, so I put it up for sale and people bought it and it blew my mind. Um, and then people blog about it and then other people buy it and it just, you know, kind of takes off. And then everybody was asking me, when's your next pattern? What's your next pattern? When's it coming out? So I made the scout team <laughs> and then just kept doing it after that. So that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So how long, how long has that been now since the first one till now? Oh God, I think the first one came out in 2011 and then the next one after that was maybe 2012. And then, um, I really started focusing on it more seriously, um, in 2013. So, so it's been a couple of years. Yeah. 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 I think that's important to point out. So, so now you've also branched out to print patterns, which is super exciting. My local quilt shop gather here, just uh, posted a photo of, um, your new shirt dress that they just made. And, um, it's just so cool to see it everywhere, you know, and you've also just officially moved your studio outside of your house. So I guess why print patterns when you had the PDF business already up and running and why the studio moved to, um, well, the, the printed patterns were, um, people wanted them. I got a lot of emails from people, shops who wanted to wholesale or people who just wanted to buy them. A lot of people don't like taping together a big thing, um, of like, you know, 50 sheets of paper, um, or don't have access to a copy shop to do it. And it's actually more expensive to buy the PDF and then go to the copy shop to print it than just buying the printed pattern. Um, so that, and then it's also nice to wholesale and see your things in shops. And are you working? Uh, yeah. Are you working with the distributor? Or are you just doing a direct to shops? I'm just doing direct to shops right now. Cause That's I, awesome. yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully going to get into that in a little bit, but I just need to do one thing at a time. Totally. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah, in the studio, I've been working from home. Um, my apartment's small, and my boyfriend moved in, so something had to give. <laughs> so I moved out. Good for you. That's so yeah. cool. Um, how far away is the new studio? It is like five minutes. It's pretty close. That's um, perfect. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's under construction right now, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's been crazy. Um, so I wanted to ask both of you before we move on to our recommendations of which we've got a bunch of great ones, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how you think home sewing has changed and is changing, um, you know, over the last five or 10 years and what you feel like is different about kind of this moment in home sewing as opposed to, you know, home sewing a few decades ago or even two decades ago you know, what are people looking for now and how is the industry responding or not responding? Um, so I just wanted to, to sort of think about that a little bit about the meaning that sewing clothes has for people in 2014. Um, Cal, do you have any thoughts about that? I have, I could talk all day about that, <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, on the one hand, I wasn't really involved in sewing from, you know, like the actual home sewing, uh, world. Uh, well, I'm thinking like in the eighties and nineties and probably even the, do we call them the aughts? I never, I never <laughs> really got down with what we call that decade. Um, but like, I mean, that was kind of the, whole time where I was, you know, I went to fashion school, I worked in the industry. And so I don't think I really ever even came across a sewing pattern, but 
my understanding and observation of those past few decades is that it seemed to me like the sewing pattern world just really did not keep pace with the actual clothing manufacturing world. And I think most people were moving away from sewing. Like I think in the fifties and sixties, maybe even in the seventies, um, people were sewing a lot at home, but then, you know, there was the whole like feminist revolution and nobody, you know, people felt like we don't have to sew our own clothes. We're not going to stay home and cook and sew and do all those things, which is funny. Cause now, you know, we're, well, I don't even want to get into the whole feminism thing. Cause I'm certainly not the person to really talk about that. But anyway, um, I feel like maybe up into the seventies, the patterns actually fit with what people wanted to make and wanted to wear. But then there was this kind of whole void period of like 20 to 30 years where the patterns looked like they were 20 or 30, like they looked like the fifties or something and they were styled really unattractively. And which it's like, no wonder no one wanted to sew because the patterns did not look appealing or hip at all. So that seemed to coincide. I guess the industry just didn't know what to do because people had stopped sewing and, but they certainly weren't going to lure them back with the patterns anyway. So the whole, like in the recent, I don't know, I'm not really sure when this started to happen because it was such a slow, well, I guess it's quick. I don't know. Timing is very hard to figure out really, but, um, like with the dawn of the internet and the indie craft movement and new indie sewing patterns starting to happen again, you know, it, I guess it all just goes hand in hand. Like it's hard for one to lead the other. I think they both feed each other. Like, like Jen said, when you made your first pattern and then people blogged about it and which makes other people want to make it, it's like this beautiful, like worldwide community thing that can create kind of a snowballing effect. And like, we all just want to make all the things because we see them and they're cute. And I feel like the fabric companies in some ways are sort of responding. Like I, I feel like there's more knits and there's more voile, like some of, you know, art gallery fabric, some of the quilting cotton companies are sort of seeing that other substrates are going to be attractive to people who want to sew garments and are branching out. Do you feel like that's happening? Yeah, I think so. Um, I know um, like Dear Stella is coming out with a shirting line really soon. And um, it's like everybody's kind of just getting on the like clothing sewing wagon, which is really nice. Um, Because especially like here in Chicago, you'd think there'd be a lot of fabric stores, but they're really... It's like one fabric store besides Vogue. Um, so, yeah, it's nice that people are, you know, thinking about garment sewing when they're making their fabrics now. What do you feel like is going to happen to, I mean, to the big the big pattern companies, the big four, you know, Simplicity, it's really big too, Simplicity and McCall's, like, what's what what's that going to look like down the road? Do you feel like they're 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 keeping up now or, you know, are they realizing that it's back and 
you know, kind of styling their clothes and creating patterns that are more hip? Or, I mean, I just wonder what sort of predicting, what, what is that going to look like down the road? I mean, I think they're definitely trying. I know like McCall's and Simplicity just got like Instagram accounts and um, they, they're definitely like trying to like make more um, appealing patterns, I would say. Um, and I know they're also, McCall's at least is starting to, well, Simplicity did this with uh, Lisa of Oliver and S with the Lizette patterns. And I know McCall's is starting to like talk to indie designers, like they're doing Megan Nielsen um, uh, maternity patterns right now. So um, they're definitely trying. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see. Um, it's, it's really changing. And the fact that now independent people can, who have talent and skill can create a pattern and sell it directly to the consumer. Um, like what, what happens to them? You know, what happens to the big companies? Um, I don't know. It's an, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, I, for right now, I think they're, they're still here for sure. Um, so, uh, all right. I think that it's time to move on to our our recommendation list. Um, both of you have submitted some really terrific lists of things you're loving right now. And I pulled together a list of mine as well. So we're going to jump into those. And um, Cal, we're going to start with you. And your first pick is for um, an app for a smartphone called Timer Cam. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe everybody already knows about this concept and I'm sure timer cam is not the only one, but it's the one that I happen to use. And basically the way I've been taking my photos for years, and I will give a disclaimer that I'm certainly not claiming to have really good photos in any way. But the, the one thing that I think works really well for me is when I use my real camera, I've always just use the self timer and a tripod because I find that even though my boyfriend who lives with me is a professional photographer and people often think he takes all the pictures, if he's involved, if he's standing there behind the camera, it's like, I totally feel self-conscious. I don't know what to do. And he starts getting into his like photographer mode and he's like, chin up turn your head (laughs) they start getting mad at him and scowling the whole thing just falls apart so the only way it works for me is with a tripod and a timer um, because I find I can like stare off into the woods with these dreamy looks on my face if I'm alone and no one can see me but otherwise that never there's no serene moment and I know Jen that you mentioned this on your blog too oh yeah (laughs) but so then when I started using the phone more recently like for me made May and things like that I'm like well how do I how does everybody do it with the phone like I either can't hold the phone far enough because the length of my arm is not nearly long enough to get my whole outfit in or I'm like propping it up but the timer cam allows you to be a self-timer I'm like why doesn't the iPhone have a self-timer built in I don't know but the timer cam lets you use it as though it has a self-timer and I actually just ordered something that 
I learned about on your podcast, Abby, and I forget who recommended it, but it's the Gorilla Pod, which is a little mini tripod for your phone, but it hasn't come yet. So, but I think between those two things, it's going to revolutionize my photos. Oh yeah. That's totally great. Yeah. I think it was Kim Worker who recommended that. Yeah. It's, that's really cool. So it's like a little tripod that um, yeah. has a, a little extension or a little um, piece on it that accepts the iPhone. So you can easily, you don't have to use what I use, which is masking tapes, taping my (laughs) phone to a lamp so that I can take a video or whatever. You can um, actually have a real thing that holds it correctly. Um, So that sounds, yeah, that sounds really cool. I don't know why the iPhone doesn't have a self timer in the, that seems yeah like an oversight for sure. Um, and is it free? Do you remember if time it is, it's at least I have the free version and you know, as usual, I think you can upgrade to a paid version and it removes the ads or something, but I don't really spend enough time on it that I even see the ads. So like when you're taking pictures and, you know, running back and forth, like you don't notice ads. (laughs) It's not a big deal. Totally. Okay. That's a good one. Um, Jen, you wanted to talk about um, a tool that is a buttonhole chisel made by Bernina. This looks like a great tool. Yeah. um, I think a lot of companies make them. That's just the one I have. Um, But yeah, to open your buttonholes, it's just this little chisel and a little block of wood and you just chisel right through the buttonhole and then you don't have to like worry about if you use a seam ripper you know you can rip through and ruin all your hard work on the last step and um you know getting a scissor in there is also a pain so it's just one of my favorite tools and you don't Uh, have to hit it with a hammer right you just push it down yeah you just push it down it's like a little knife chisel and just right through that's so cool and i don't know enough about buttonholes to know but does it need to be in different sizes it's small enough that, um, like a pretty small button. Um, I think it's like a half inch button or something like that is bigger than the chisel. Um, at least with this chisel. So I've never, I don't do a lot of like teeny tiny little buttons. Um, but most of them, it'll be fine on the larger buttons. You'll have to do it twice cause it's Long small, hunk. but yeah. Cool. Do you, do you use one of those Cal? No, I actually avoid buttonholes like the plague. (laughs) And I was just admiring your new, I'm blanking on the name, but the cute dress shirt (laughs) pattern and just thought that is so cute. But all those buttonholes, I don't know that I would ever do. No, people are always so afraid of buttonholes. They're like, they just hate doing them because I don't know. I just, I have a foot for my machine that just, it's like a one-step buttonhole. It just does the whole buttonhole. Then I chisel it open, and I have a foot that sews on the buttons. So I'm like, yeah, this is great, you know. But if you don't have that stuff, I would, I would probably never do it. <laughs> I almost never do it. I have to say, but I do have that same foot. Um, and when I do them, I'm like, this is magic. Yeah, like, right? I do definitely feel like I love this. This is so amazing. But then it'll be like a year before I decide that I'm going to mm-hmm. actually do anything with a button again. You know, I don't know why. Yeah. Well, it's like that sewing dread thing. It's like you just amp it up in your head and and <laughs> it's so easy, but you know, once it's in your head, like, oh, this is going to be a pain, then it, then it is until you do it. <laughs> At least for me. <laughs> 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm like inspired now to try to make something with buttons because you're right that it isn't actually all that hard at all. In fact, it's really easy and kind of like magic. So, yeah. Um, I <laughs> wanted to talk about a really great book that I just finished. It's called How to Catch a Frog by Heather Ross. Have you guys read this? No. Um, so, you know, Heather Ross is an amazing designer. She designs beautiful fabrics. She's a surface designer and, um, and does other things as well. But, um, you know, I've admired her fabrics for a long time. You know, I started my blog in 2005 and I remember them even back then, you know, on like the 30 sewing blogs that there were, people were going crazy for them. Um, and so, you know, I, but I didn't really know that much about her. And then I saw, or I actually, I heard an interview about her maybe a month ago on the Thread Cult podcast, which I really recommend the podcast, that podcast is, as well, but I, especially the interview with Heather. Um, and so she talked about this book that she recently wrote, which is her memoir. You know, she has two other um, books that are both craft books, um, but this is her, her like a, a book that's you know, kind of a nonfiction memoir book. Um, and so I picked it up and I just finished reading it and it's just wonderful. Like it was one of those books I didn't want to read because I didn't want to finish it. Um, so she grew up in rural Vermont in the 1970s and she has a twin sister and they lived with their single mom in basically like self-imposed poverty. Um, her mom was kind of a hippie and moved to rural Vermont with that, with kind of like a hippie group who then eventually all left and she stayed and they lived in an uninsulated schoolhouse in Vermont and, um, you know, nearly froze like in the winters. And, you know, her mom wasn't really ready to be a mom. She was really young and had these twin girls. And she just tells the story of her childhood, of, of being self-reliant, of living in a, you know, self, she describes it herself as a really dysfunctional family. And, um, that sort of made her resist authority and, um, she loves to swim and she describes swimming in Vermont in a way that's really beautiful. So anyway, at the end of each chapter, there are how to instructions to make something like how to keep your food from being eaten by bears or how to make a beanpole teepee. Um, and in that way, it's like another book that I loved, which was A Homemade Life by Molly Weisenberg. I don't know if you've read that one, but that was a really terrific book. And she tells the story of her life. And at the end of each chapter, there's a recipe. So Heather's book is similar, but the end of each chapter, there's a project. And the project is just, you know, like a few paragraphs. It's not like a lot of photos or anything like that. It's not a craft book. Um, but the book is peppered with Heather's illustrations of nature, which are just totally charming and so great. Um, so she talks sort of toward the end about starting her design business and failing and then starting over again and finding her husband and then becoming a mother. Um, it's just so great. I really recommend it. Um, and it's a Melanie Fallick book. Um, and it's just out now. So if you are interested in Heather's life or in design or handmade business, I think you'll, you'll really like it. It's a great summer read too. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, all right, Cal, we're back to you. So you wanted to talk about James Hill and his <laughs> ukulele version of Billie Jean, which I just watched this morning <laughs> and I, I can see why you want to talk about it. So. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. So I'm learning to play ukulele, which, much like everything else, I think I've mentioned, was is it was not a plan. <laughs> I it was sort of a spontaneous thing where a friend of mine just like put one in my lap and said, "This is what you do." And next thing I knew, I was playing music, which I've always regretted stopping or quitting violin in the fourth grade because we moved to a different school that didn't have orchestra. So anyway, I always thought I'd love to play music, but I think it would be way too hard to try to like learn it all over again now. And anyway, ukulele is a super easy gateway instrument to get you. You can be playing very quickly. So anyway, part of my friend's campaign to get me to want to play was she showed me this video, which just totally blew my mind because if you think ukulele is just like tiny bubbles and tiptoe through the tulips, <laughs> James Hill is just like a musical genius. And the way he can play all these parts, so it sounds like there's actually three or four people that are playing a piano and a bass and a drum and a ukulele or a guitar. It just blows my mind, and I've watched it so many times, but I never get tired of it. So you really just have to watch it to see what I'm talking about. But It is amazing, and it doesn't sound at all the way you would think. Like, you're surprised that it's Billie Jean. Do you know what I'm, I'm saying? Never- <laughs> like, it's almost hilarious. You're like, oh, my God. I don't even like the song Billie Jean. I've never been a Michael Jackson fan. So it's not even about that for me at all. It's just like, I cannot believe that one guy and one ukulele is making all those sounds and all at the same time. (laughs) That's awesome. And good for you for learning the ukulele as an adult. It's really fun. I know it's like all the kids are doing it these days, but I can't help it. It's totally fun. And Everyone should do it. (laughs) Um, All right, Jen, you wanted to talk about Attenborough's life stories, which is part of um, nature. And I feel like, um, I forget what his first name is. Is it James? David. David. So his voice is like the voice of nature when you watch nature on PBS. Do you know what I'm saying? He's been doing this for so long long and you watch these episodes from when he was a really young guy mm-hmm. and now he must be like in his I don't know late 70s it's just really amazing uh, yeah it's just I always I, I grew up watching nature documentaries and so I've seen a lot of his documentaries and when I'm just like spacing out after work or whatever I love to you know turn on a documentary about owls or something um <laughs> And so he's always the one doing these. So it's really interesting to just follow his life and, you know, where he started. And I think he was like in like junior high age or high school age when he started like getting into this. And I mean, they would do like expeditions to like jungles to collect like species for um, like display in London and stuff like that. And just it's just crazy to watch how it's changed and how different what he does now is from what he did then and it's just it blows my mind <laughs> i've watched a, the series a few times now so <laughs> i'm just re-watching it now which is why i thought of it it kind of reflects back to us the way that um you know american society has or i guess western society has approached 
um, our relationship with nature, you know, cause it sounds like in the very beginning, he was really kind of like bringing back specimens, sort of the old way of displaying nature for the masses. And then yeah. now it's very much focused on like ecology and, you know, and the environment and, um, looking at the environmental damage that's been done and how to correct it. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll even, he, he says like, I can't believe we were doing these things we were doing, but you know, they didn't know at the time. Um, but yeah, it, it's really, I, I just find it like so fascinating. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's someone who spent their whole life, you know, working on this and is, where is he from originally? Is he Australian or? I think he's from England. England. Okay. Yeah. He's got a great accent. He does. I, I mean, anything he narrates, I'm going to watch. <laughs> animals is even better because I love animals. But yeah. <laughs> totally. You hear his voice and you're like calm. I don't know. I know. It's so relaxing it after is. a stressful day. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, cool. So I, I wanted to talk um, about a favorite Instagram account of mine. And it is um, Rachel Ryle. R-Y-L-E. Have you guys ever watched any of her Instagram videos? No. Uh Okay. So you got to watch them because she's amazing. She just does these, I guess she's been doing them for a year. I really don't know anything about her. I I should probably do a little more research, but she does have a website, but, um, but it's just links to all of her videos. So she does these um, stop motion animation videos on Instagram that are amazing. She just uses, and I don't remember how many seconds you have on an Instagram video, but it's not many. Is it like 15 or 20, something like that? And she uses those seconds in the most wonderful way. She cuts paper and draws illustrations and then, you know, does stop motion animation with them and um, tells a little story, you know, basically. And they're just completely smooth and perfect. I mean, I don't know how many hours it must take to use Instagram that way, but I think it's sort of one of the, my favorite ways I've ever seen Instagram used. So um, look her up and follow her. She doesn't post a ton of them, but you can just go back through, you know, a year's worth of archives and just sit and watch them and be amazed because everyone is perfect. And they're just little treats, you know, like little perfect treats of stop motion animation. So, all right, Cal, we are back up to you. And you wanted to talk about nature box. <laughs> yeah. So, um, for people who live in like a city or a place with really good grocery stores, this might not be of interest to you, but as someone who did live in a big city with all the fancy food for many, many years and got very used to being able to just walk out my door and get whatever I wanted at any time, um, to now live in rural New York where cars do go by, but, um, it basically, it's about a 25 minute drive for me to get to a grocery store and, I work at home all day, so I don't really have to leave the house that often. And I am constantly looking for snacks. And if left to my own devices, I would pretty much just eat cookies all day long. But that's really not good for us, (laughs) in case you didn't know that. (laughs) Um, So I somehow, I think on Facebook, somebody posted a link about this thing called Nature Box. And it's like... 
you go on their website and they have all these great snacks that are also really healthy. I mean, there's a range of like more healthy and less healthy, but overall they're like made with nuts and honey and there's cookies and there's all kinds of good stuff. But in general, it's just like the kind of stuff you would get at a really great health food store. But I don't have one of those anywhere near me. So I love, and I love the kind of surprise element of getting this box of fun snacks in the mail every month, even though you can either do it, you can do it totally as a surprise or you can also go in and pick. So now I tend to curate my snacks a little more because <laughs> um, there's some like things that go in that like salty corn chip direction are not really my, I like things like the maple chipotle almonds or something like that. But so, and it's really reasonable. It's like, I think it's 1995 um, for five bags of snacks and the shipping is free. So it's like a really good deal. And for me, it just works really well with my life and my limited access to good, healthy, fun snacks. I can just imagine myself like when the box comes, you know, just be like, oh, my snacks came. I would eat them all in one sitting. It's so embarrassing. I know I would. <laughs> Open all my snacks. I've always been really good at rationing things out. Like I always had my Halloween candy until like Easter. So oh my gosh. It, <laughs> it works really well for me. But. This is an important thing to know about you. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm like Mike, I have three kids and um, my theory with Halloween candy, like people do kind of different things. They do these, this Halloween candy fairy where you get to eat a little bit of it and then the fairy comes and takes all your Halloween candy and like swaps it out with a toy. <laughs> yeah, I do not into the fairy. So I just feel like I just let them have at it. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, there's no rationing. There's no, I'm just like, I'm just like eat it all, you know, like the first week, just go nuts yeah. and yep. then just eat all of it. And then it's gone. Like, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, here you go. Like the door is open. Just eat it. Um, I don't know if that's the best theory, but that's what I do. <laughs> it kind of reduces fights. I'm just like, <laughs> my parents would let us just eat it all. And then we'd just like shove our faces for like a few days and we were so tired of it. I don't even think we'd finish. Yeah, totally. That's what happens. And we donate the rest of the school and they send them. <laughs> Well, they say they send them to the troops. I don't know if they do or not, but that's what we do. We just pack it up and right when they're done, they're like, I don't want anymore. I'm like, perfect. Take it away. Yeah. <laughs> that's my coping mechanism to like three kids worth of crazy Halloween candy. Um, all right. So since we're on the food kick, uh, Jen, you wanted to talk about a Trader Joe's deliciousness called fig butter. I haven't had this. I was just eating it last night while I was making this list. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge, huge, huge snacker. If you didn't get that from me wanting to eat all the snacks at once. Um, I would like trade my meals to just be able to eat like all day long, nonstop a little bit. Um, but the Trader Joe's fig butter, it's like, I love figs. I love dried figs, but sometimes you want something with peanut butter and it's just like, I don't know. It, I love it. I just, I had it the first time like a few months ago and I've just had like a nonstop jar in the fridge ever since. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I love, 
there's just certain things about like Trader Joe's is so brilliant because they have these certain things that you can only get there that you just love that are, you know, like I feel like anyone who lives anywhere near a Trader Joe's has these one or two products that they're like, you have to get the Trader Joe's (laughs) thing, you know, whatever it is, you know, and they don't sell it anywhere else. It's like, you just have to go there and get it. Yeah. 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 Everyone's really into that cookie butter stuff, but I'm afraid of that. I don't, I don't think I should ever put that in my mouth because well, number one, I don't know if there's cookies in it and I'm celiac, but number two, (laughs) if I taste something that tastes like cookies and there aren't cookies in it, I saw them and eat the rest of my life. Yeah. I can't go near that. So what is that? It's like cookie dough butter? I don't really know because I'm afraid to find out. <laughs> I'm afraid I'll like it and it might be something I can eat and that my my diet will just... <laughs> I like That'll be my entire diet. Like, that's all I'll if eat. that's what it is, I can understand your, your fear. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't look at it. I just... <laughs> Keep I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> spreading cookies on bread is the last thing I need to know about. Yeah. Well, like, and then imagine if you put fig butter on, it'd be like a fig Newton, right? <laughs> like, wait, I don't know. Less yeah. healthy, more healthy? I don't know. Probably about the same. <laughs> but is the fig butter like, is it like that peanut butter and jelly swirled in a jar stuff? But oh, no, the goober? <laughs> No, it's just it's just like a fig jam kind of. I'm not sure why they call it butter really. It's not peanut butter in it. No, it's just like fig fig preserves. Okay. Um but it's I pretty tasty. That. I need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Um you need to call you need to call Nature Box and tell them to add that to your box. <laughs> I, I do get dried figs from Nature Box because I feel like I never see dried figs anywhere and I love them. So I actually have them listed as my like send me these every month. <laughs> <laughs> They're so good. It's like I know. But it's actually just a fig. <laughs> I know. Blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's just from nature. It's so good. The only place I can find them here is at Whole Foods, and they're so expensive because yeah. they're like organic, free range figs, or I mean, you know, <laughs> like every every label you can possibly put on it. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's um, free. So I think this about wraps it up on the fig uh-uh. note. Um, but it's been <laughs> so much fun talking to you guys, and um, just thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's just awesome. So um, you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and see you next time.